This is Northwest This Week with your host, Mark Christopher. Hi, and it's great to have you with us. You're about to hear what our staff feels are the stories you need to know about. Maybe you missed it or only got a headline or two for the week ending of January 21st. It's a way for you to catch up. Originally as a podcast, but now we feature it here on the weekend on air. So give a listen and let's see what you did not get to hear. Like big tech layoffs and a green light for a controversial dividend payment. The Washington State Legislature gets down to business on a number of bills. And the number show last year was a very violent one in Pierce County. Again, just a fraction of the stories for the week ending January 21st here at Northwest This Week. Let's go to our first story. Microsoft announcing at first 10,000, possibly 11,000 layoffs, while the first of 18,000 Amazon workers began getting their pink slips. Jacob Bojic had a story in the Washington Post and shared this with our listeners. Jacob, Amazon's cuts were already announced. It's just the notices went out. Microsoft is the latest, though, to announce a mass layoff. Why did they do this today? Microsoft, you know, this is more of a canary in the coal mine. And, and this was a business that was thought to be a little bit more insulated because it doesn't have a lot of consumer exposure. But CEO today saying we need to invest in product lines that are growth areas and really get out of ones that aren't, which means hardware and and even some parts of their gaming business. And so this is a repositioning maneuver. They're also looking at macroeconomic headwinds that they don't think are going to be favorable and saying this is the time to cut costs, especially after we went on a hiring bonanza during the heat of the pandemic. It's so interesting, though, for me to see 10,000 jobs cut at a time when they're trying to buy Activision Blizzard for $69 billion. But how much of the Microsoft workforce does this 10,000 number represent? This is going to be cold comfort to a lot of folks, but it's worth saying 10,000 is 5% of their workforce. And we've actually seen as these tech layoffs of Microsoft is far from the first and neither is Amazon. We've seen Meta. We've seen Salesforce. Alphabet has talked about freezing hiring as well. So we've seen in this tech sector, unemployment remains historically low. And that is true in the tech sector as well, because of all these small and medium-sized businesses that have started recently that need talent. So this is a 5% of the workforce for Microsoft. It's 10,000 people is a lot of people to Microsoft. It's not as many. Uh, And these are folks that, again, it's going to be called comfort to them, but should be able to find employment in their sector. And I saw a number earlier today of something like a $1.2 billion fund for their severance packages. So it's it's not like they're out on the street in the cold, but Microsoft, Amazon, you mentioned Meta, Salesforce, Netflix, Snap, and, and Twitter, they've got their own problems. But what kind of signals are all these tech companies reacting to? Are, are they basing all of this off the same data? Yes and no. I mean, all these businesses are different, but let's look at kind of the unifying themes. The first is interest rates. Interest rates are very high. These companies don't make things, right? The things that they make are intellectual property and services. When, when you have to do that, it's not like you, you know, are replacing a, something on a factory floor. I mean, you have to borrow money to make a lot of this stuff. You know, your asset is your people. That costs a lot of money. And so when you have to cut back, you're cutting back on people. It is harder to pay people in a higher interest rate environment. That's one. Two, and Microsoft was a little bit inflated from this, but it's consumer spending. Uh, Let's look at Amazon, for example, and even Meta is a good example, too. Amazon has a lot of consumer exposure because we are buying things from them or vendors who are on that platform. Meta gets a lot of money off of advertising. 
we as consumers did not buy as much over the holidays as we have in previous years because we didn't buy as much. Advertisers didn't get as much return on investment, and so they're cutting back. And so it has this ripple effect. You take all of that exposure, you combine that with high interest rate environments, and you're going to start seeing layoffs. The concern is that does this spill over into the larger economy? When you lay off workers from Microsoft, is the sandwich shop around the block from the office not going to get the same kind of business and do they have to make layoffs? Is the strip mall around the block where people go and shop on the weekends, are they going to get the same amount of business? Do they have to make layoffs? So that's kind of what we're looking at for right now. We'll see if there's another shoe yet to drop. There's a lot to expect from 2023. And you can read what the analysts are saying online in Jacob Bogage's latest report at WashingtonPost.com. That was a story pick of Taylor Van Sice here of Northwest News. Attorney General Bob Ferguson says he is surprised and disappointed for the Washington State Supreme Court declining to review a request to block Albertsons in that $4 billion dividend payment. A temporary order blocking the dividend payments to shareholders expired yesterday. And with the state's high court denying a review, there's nothing in the way of Albertsons sending out those massive payouts. In a statement on A.G. Ferguson's website, it says the special dividend payment risks severely undercutting the grocery giant's ability to compete as federal and state regulators scrutinize the merger Albertsons, which owns Safeway, hopes to make with Kroger, which owns QFC and Fred Meyer. Precisely why a court should slow this down and let the regulators, like the federal government and my office, review this proposed merger and see if it's lawful or not. The Seattle Times supports unions that represent store workers, said the dividend payments favor a small number of ultra-wealthy shareholders over the many thousands of essential workers. They call it an outright financial looting of Albertsons. Carlene Johnson, Northwest News Radio. Supporters of a new state capital gains tax are confident the state Supreme Court will see things their way and overturn a lower court's decision. Let's see what the latest is. Carwin Hake. With just a week to go, attorney Paul Lawrence is fine-tuning the position he'll take when he argues the case before the state Supreme Court. An income tax is not a property tax. The U.S. Supreme Court has recognized that. A group led by former state attorney general Rob McKenna says just the opposite. They hold that a 7% tax on sales proceeds of $250,000 or more is in fact an income tax and unconstitutional under state law. A Douglas County judge agreed, forcing next week's Supreme Court challenge. Attorney Howard Goodfriend is confident the high court will overturn the lower court's decision. We think that the Supreme Court is going to recognize that the legislature has broad authority to devise transactional taxes to fund its citizens' basic needs. The basic need in this case is child care, early learning, and K-12 education. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. We also had a story the past week. United States Senator Patty Murray was back at Olympia talking about child care and early childhood learning. John Libertini with a story. Surrounded by Washington state lawmakers, Patty Murray talked about doing more. I made it clear to all of our colleagues in Congress that we have to invest in child care. And Congress backed her in that end of the year spending bill. I was able to secure $1.8 billion increase for federal child care funding, increasing our investment by 30%. But Murray says there's a reason families, their children, and the economy are still struggling. State Senator Claire Wilson. Parents cannot 
return to work unless there are safe, quality places for their children to be cared for. Early childhood education is also taking a hit because providers can't make a living wage. But Murray promises to use her newly minted power. I will use my seat as chair of the appropriations to put the investments into child care. Anything we can do is absolutely imperative. Governor Jay Inslee is a supporter, but the big money is in Congress. John Lobertini, Northwest News Radio. In our next segment, what is this about truck eaters? And then there's one story we want to make sure you knew of here. It has to do with checking fees. It goes like this. A survey showing that more than one in four checking account holders, or 57 million adults, are still paying fees every month. Nearly half of them are sacrificing their level of recession preparedness to do so. Bankrate.com Sarah Foster breaks it down for us. Here's what she shared. Take us behind those numbers. What kinds of fees are we talking about with those checking accounts? Yeah, so the kinds of fees that Americans are still paying could include anything from customer service charges, maybe even maintenance fees, overdraft fees, non-sufficient fund fees. And, uh, you know, whatever the cause is, uh, we know that it's adding up here because on average, Americans are paying fees of about $24 a month or pretty close to $300 a year. What age group is most likely to be dealing with those fees? I think what's really eye-opening here about who is paying these fees is it's not really uh, who you think it is. It's younger generations are most likely to be burdened by them. That includes 46% of Gen Z, 42% of millennials. They're nearly twice as likely as Gen X and baby boomers to pay checking account fees. And uh, even the, you know, the propensity to send is even more. We see that they have higher fees than their older generations as well. And I would imagine having to pay those fees is keeping a lot of us from using that money for other more practical and more desired purposes. Yeah, and very important purposes here, too. As you pointed out, obviously the economy is much different this year than it really was heading into last year. Bankrate Survey of Economists says that there's pretty close to a two in three chance that the U.S. economy enters a recession this year. And banking fees and having to pay those charges, that's keeping nearly half of Americans from a recession preparedness. But also other goals, too, like saving for major financial purchases like a home or saving for college and even saving for retirement or funding discretionary purchases as well. All right. The entire report can be found at Bankrate.com. Sarah, thanks as always. Great to talk to you. That's Sarah Foster from Bankrate.com. Tom Hutler of Northwest News Radio. We are giving you a quick review of the top stories of this past week ending January 21st that perhaps you didn't even hear. We have more just ahead. You're listening to Northwest This Week. Let's continue as several gun bills got their first hearings at the state capitol, including one to ban assault weapons. Supporters of House Bill 1240 say weapons like the AR-15 only serve one purpose, and that's to cause widespread harm. Anne-Marie Parsons' daughter was killed in the 2017 Las Vegas mass shooting. With this weapon, you don't need to be a good marksman to kill and or injure over 900 people. No one was targeted that night. They were all mowed down. Robin Ball, who owns an indoor sharpshooting range was among opponents arguing that tougher laws and stricter sentences are what's needed, referring to a CDC study of the 90s era assault weapons ban. The actual findings from the CDC, and I quote, the 10-year gun ban had no measurable impact on gun violence. The House committee also heard bills that would allow local governments to make their own gun laws and two similar bills that would require a 10-day waiting period, a state background check, and firearm safety training to get a permit to buy a gun. Ryan Harris, Northwest 
Fresh News Radio. An overflow crowd turned out in Olympia this past week as a Senate committee took a hard look at hospital safety and nurse staffing. The hospital crisis is real. Overworked and overwhelmed nurses and hospital staff. If a rare disease patient is showing up at the hospital, Stephanie Simpson is with the Bleeding Disorder Foundation. They need the healthcare workers that are caring for them to be at their best. The details matter and mistakes can be deadly. Senate Bill 5236 would create nurse-patient ratios, provide better enforcement of meal and rest breaks, and stop mandatory overtime. Lisa Thatcher is with the Washington State Hospital Association. Mandatory nurse patient ratios will cause more hospital services to close because hospitals will not be able to find the nurses or whether the fines to serve all patients who walk through the doors. Critics are especially concerned about the fate of small rural hospitals. Kelly Johnson is a nurse. There are 16,000 nurses licensed in this state that could fill the 6,000 vacancies that are currently present. The shortage is not nurses. The shortage is safe work environments. It's not clear yet just how many patients a nurse would be legally allowed to care for. John Lobertini, Northwest News Radio. Perhaps if there is a list of top 10 of things you see are just being totally ignored, this might be one. Like most people in our state, there's a law if you have likely broken repeatedly. That's the one against jaywalking. Now, a state senator would like to see that law repealed in favor of what she says reasonable care. Supporters of the new legislation say jaywalking laws were never really about public safety, but rather about restricting voting rights. Historically, they say, those who could not pay the jaywalking fine, typically poor people and people of color, would lose their franchise. Others say the automobile lobby pushed jaywalking laws around the turn of the century to shame pedestrians. Jay in this context was slang for idiot. Now, a bill sponsored by Democratic State Senator Rebecca Saldana of Seattle would remove any remnant of those injustices. The bill reads in part, quote, A pedestrian may cross a roadway at any point unless a reasonably careful person would realize there is an immediate danger. First reading was Monday. No hearing is yet scheduled. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. Let me get that truck eater story I teased in our last segment. If you've driven under a certain bridge in Kirkland, perhaps you've seen the sign that reads, I eat trucks. Manufacturer Northwest News reports the banner may not come down after all and explains why. For years, the Kirkland Way Bridge has stopped vehicles that can't clear the bridge's 11.6 feet. That's at least two feet lower than today's standard bridges. Under Kirkland's new banner code approved this week, the I Eat Trucks shark teeth banners on the bridge would have to come down, but city manager Kurt Triplett wants to designate the signs as city banners. The city would then be responsible for it, so if you know tethers or something broke, we would fix those. The issue may end up before the council again. What might replace the banners, we've talked in the past about murals and other things so but but in the short term the trekking bridge banner will remain um, as a city banner and, and therefore doesn't have to be in these permit and fee processes. According to the Seattle Times, Triplett says the banners provide community spirit. They bring attention to the issue, and they don't want drivers crashing into the bridge. Manda Factor, Northwest News Radio. Newly elected Democratic State Representative Clyde Shavers, who took a lot of heat for exaggerating his military service, has been placed on a committee that handles veterans' issues. That decision... Not going over well, as you can imagine, with some lawmakers. House Minority Leader Republican J.T. Wilcox told reporters in a Tuesday briefing that not only did Representative Shavers misrepresent his military service, but he also lied about being a lawyer. I've certainly heard from Democrats in the past uh, when they had ethical objections to House Republican members 
We addressed it. Uh, we didn't go putting them on the very committees that they had offended. Wilcox stopped short of calling for Shaver's removal from the House Innovation, Community and Economic Development and Veterans Committee. Shavers is a graduate of the United States Naval Academy and served eight years in the Navy. The Daily Herald reports it was his claim to have been a nuclear submarine officer, which was untrue. He apologized. House Majority Leader Democrat Joe Fitzgibbon told reporters Shavers is needed on the committee because of his experience and the years he has served cannot be denied or taken away. Carlene Johnson, Northwest News Radio. Seattle Public Schools has become the latest district to ban a controversial chatbot. At issue is the program ChatGPT. It's a natural language internet chatbot known for its ability to quickly answer complex questions. The concern is that students will use the service to cheat. Like all districts, Seattle Public Schools does not allow cheating and requires original thought and work from its students. District spokesman Tim Robinson told GeekWire the district has now blocked ChatGPT on all its devices, but the problem is that students can still access the service on their personal devices. Colleges and universities, though, are reportedly more reluctant to ban and ChatGPT, arguing that it can enhance the writing process and not replace it. Jeff Pogel of Northwest News Radio. Northwest News this week, giving you a chance to catch up to stories ending for January 21st. Just ahead, Pierce County violence and also a radar mystery that puzzles many in eastern Washington. Sometimes public hearings at city halls and school boards get out of hand. There is a disturbing lack of benches in Ramsey Park. I want to sit more. I found a sandwich in one of your parks, and I want to know why it didn't have mayonnaise. Why don't you have hand dryers in the park bathrooms? They're so much more sanitary than paper towels. While those scripted comments were made on the TV show Parks and Rec, it's not that far off from reality. In some cases, though, the shouting is about something far more disturbing than hand dryers in park bathrooms. A story in the Washington Post that we found. Karin, you've been examining some of these meetings. Uh, what's happening to our public discourse? What have you noticed? I think we've all read a lot in the past few years about public meetings getting a little wilder, often over things like masks in response to the coronavirus pandemic. More recently at school boards, there's been a lot of consternation, you might say, about books in libraries, books in curriculum, curriculum changes, programs like critical race theory or or other programs on diversity and equity. Um, And there's just been an increasing interest in local politics, which all the officials I talked to generally thought of as a good thing. But what's happened is that some of the passion over these topics that are really socially divisive um, have bled into the public comment portion of these meetings and made them sometimes much more unruly than they used to be. And public is the key thing here. They're public meetings run by public employees and sometimes reporters like you or, or me when I was recovering city hall meetings are bored to tears by the six hours they have to talk about horseshoe pits, which is a true story that I'll say for another time. But but how are the these officials trying to rein in what can sometimes turn into a circus? You know, most places have a public comment policy, sort of how they, you know, that just dictates how do they call on people, how long do people have to speak, what topics, you know, might they be able to speak on. In some cases, it's agenda items only. In some cases, it's come and talk about whatever you wish. Uh, and in some cases, it's, you know, only residents of the district, school district maybe, and in other cases, it's anyone who wants to come. And as officials running these meetings sort of struggle to keep them under control, they're often now sort of tinkering around the edges of those. Um, and in some cases, 
going a little farther than that by, um, you know, suspending public comment, usually temporarily, sometimes for a few months as they sort of think, try to figure out how to how to tame these meetings. Um, in a lot of cases, you know, shortening the amount of time people have to speak, um, limiting the number of times people can speak per meeting, and in some cases even, you know, taking meetings back to being virtual like they were during sort of the height of the pandemic just to kind of keep people out of the room and keep people from fighting with each other or shouting during the meeting. And whether or not these restrictions work in the short term, are they legal? That's where we get into a little bit more gray area. And I'll leave that to our listeners to read in your latest online at WashingtonPost.com. Karn Bruliard with us. And Taylor Van Sice of Northwest News asking questions. I'm Mark Christopher. You're listening to Northwest News for the week of January 21st. We have so much more. Stay with us. You're listening to Northwest This Week with Mark Christopher. Northwest News This Week is a podcast available at our website for your convenience at nwnewsradio.com. We do archive every week's show, by the way, at that website. Violence Pierce County surged in 2022 as we continue. Northwest News Radio's Jeff Algela has the numbers to share. Even though violent crime began to cool nationwide last year, Pierce County saw an increase in murders. There were 79 killings in 2022, up from 68 the previous year, according to the News Tribune. That Tacoma saw the worst of it with 45 killings, up from 34, making it the deadliest year in city history. The most common motive for murder in Pierce County was domestic violence. And it's not just murders. There was also an increase in armed robbery in 2022, as well as aggravated assault and rape. Jeff Pogel at Northwest News Radio. Two years after the state legislature all but eliminated police pursuits, a bill has been introduced to reinstate that crime-fighting tool. During the defund the police movement, the legislature sought to regulate police tactics and equipment, and that included pursuits in most cases. This bill will allow police to pursue when it's safe to do so. House Bill 1363 overturns that law. State Representative Alicia Rule is a co-sponsor. We've just seen this increase even in, in a traffic stop, people just driving away, and that's unacceptable. Cops say lawbreakers had no fear. There were no consequences, no police pursuit. We've just seen this increase even in, in a traffic stop, people just driving away, and that's unacceptable. Representative Rules says the bill has bipartisan support from both Republicans and Democrats. John Lobertini, Northwest News Radio. Thanks, John. Athletes and fans behaving badly has contributed to a shortage of sports officials at all levels. A national effort to address the problem we're hearing. Here's Bill Schwartz. Cussing, that's leaning over, pointing fingers in the face of the officials. High school basketball and volleyball official Aaron Trujillo has been the target of verbal abuse from spectators during games in New Mexico and Colorado. They will say things whether it be under their breath or big and verbose with their hands in the air to you about your everything from your mother to your heritage to your color, skin color, you know, all of those things seem to be felt to be a free-for-all for their $5, you know, $5 fee to get into the game. Spectators, players, coaches all seem to believe they have the right to insult the women and men who enforce rules to make the game safe and fair. Today, um, we are getting reports every single week in this office having to do with physical assaults against sports officials. President Barry Mono of the National Association of Sports Officials. Do some things that make them feel welcome, that make them feel respected. Because, hey, folks, it's not always about money. I mean, we can solve the problem we're talking about today if we started paying $500 a game for high school. 
<laughs> We're not going to do that. Even before the pandemic, older officials were retiring because of verbal abuse and low pay. Across the board, we are in an official shortage issue that it's a critical mass issue. Dr. Carissa Niehoff, CEO of National Federation of High School Sports and Activities. A lack of referees means games rescheduled or worse. We're starting to see where games are actually canceled. Varsity level across sports. Um, games, track meets, you name it, they're getting canceled because they can't find people to work the games. States, including Washington, actively recruiting and training sports officials and passing tougher laws to protect them. The big message, though, from all who care about youth and high school sports, bench the bad behavior. I'm Bill Swartz, Northwest News Radio. What happens when technology evolves a little faster than our reaction time? The Washington 911 Center found out a few days ago. Over the past several months, you've heard the stories about one of the iPhone's newer features. It detects when you get into a car accident, and it calls for help when you cannot. That's pretty cool, and no doubt has saved folks from serious harm. But what happened this past weekend on a ski slope involving technology? Well, let's just say this story begins like most. It was just a regular day at Schweitzer. That's Sean Miris, the marketing director for the popular skiing area about 90 minutes northeast of Spokane. To be honest, we didn't really even know anything was happening until someone pointed it out. It was an official Twitter account that got Sean's attention. They reported a 30% spike in unintentional 911 calls, all coming from Schweitzer. The common denominator wasn't smartphones, as we just discussed. The Bonner County Sheriff's Office had reported via social media that there was an influx in unintentional calls here at Schweitzer from people's smartwatches. A few different brands of smartwatches feature what's called a fall detector. The watch detects a movement and impact and then displays a message asking the wearer if he or she needs help. If there's no response in a matter of seconds, 911 is dialed and paramedics are sent to the watch's location. It's a great feature for the elderly person who may be living alone. But on this particular day, many of the, well, let's just label them skiers more prone to not stay upright for very long, were wearing the smart watches and had not thought about disabling the fall feature. Sean tells KXLY.com it can also happen to those who are pretty good on the slopes. If you're an expert skier and you're, you know, going off a jump or in the moguls or in the train park or something like that and you come to a quick stop, you know, I can see how technology might think of that as a crash. The good news. We didn't have an influx in injuries or anything else like that, so it was just a normal day on the hill for us. But it was another reminder that advances in technology have limits, and that remembering to turn off this type of feature before skiing or even riding a roller coaster relies on good old-fashioned brain power. Brian Calvert, Northwest News Radio. Now, from one of those mysterious stories of the week, the National Weather Service has one on their hands after an odd Doppler radar signal was detected near the Tri-Cities. Eric Heinz is going to explain it. Not long after dawn on Tuesday, unknown activity was seen near Benton City and then disappeared. Meteorologist Brandon Lawhorn told the Tri-City Herald it could have been a huge flock of birds, a large wall of dust, even bats flying home. The National Weather Service decided to ask Benton City residents if they saw anything between 7.15 and 8 a.m. that day. Some predictable responses included UFOs and aliens. One suggested the LIGO Observatory, which detects gravity waves, was making them instead of simply observing. Eric Heinz, Northwest News Radio. Was there ever a time, maybe when you were younger, one of your first jobs was working in the food industry, you had to get yourself like a permit, a health permit to serve food? Well, now it looks like there's a class and a fee involved. We'll get to that story. 
story in our next segment. Right now, park rangers on the Oregon coast again explain how they plan to deal with a washed-up dead whale. Marina Rockinger with a story from Northwest News. What to do with a massive sperm whale deceased on the Oregon coast? Well, Oregon state officials say they're going to leave it to nature. Many of us think back to that story of the whale on the beach in Florence, Oregon in 1970 that was blown to bits with explosives in an effort to deal with the carcass. Paul Lindman reported for KATU. It did turn out to be a big blubbery mess. So needless to say, that method was ditched pretty quickly. This time around, the sperm whale that washed up on shore at Fort Stevens State Park west of Astoria last weekend will be left for local birds and wildlife to snack on. The hope is whatever is left will wash back into the ocean. Marina Rockinger, Northwest News Radio. You're listening to a recap of the stories of this past week ending January the 21st. We call it Northwest News this week. I'm Mark Christopher. Got a few more stories just ahead. listening to Northwest This Week, and now Mark Christopher. Welcome back. There's good news in our state on the infectious disease front. COVID-19 cases this winter amount to a bump, not a surge, and the current flu strain is actually fading away. Health officials are sounding a note of caution, though. Here's why. This time a year ago, our state was averaging 9,000 new COVID cases per week. Right now, the weekly average of COVID cases is under 800. That means a once-feared winter COVID surge is amounting to little more than a bump. Earlier this flu season, Libby Page with the state health department worried about side-by-side surges of COVID and the flu. And that could put a real strain on our health care system when you've got people seeking health care for both flu and COVID. Indeed, deaths due to the flu have been unusually high this season, 147 statewide. But a successful flu vaccination campaign has helped the state avoid overwhelming the system. At the moment, the state says incidents of flu-like illnesses are low. Although health officials don't want you to get the wrong idea, Dr. Eric Chow, King County communicable disease expert, tells the Seattle Times, different flu strains circulate throughout the flu season, and the season is not over yet. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. Arlington-based aviation aircraft has announced an agreement for 30 of their all-electric commuter planes. Aviation has signed a letter of intent with Mexican regional airline Eris for their Alice aircraft. Eris intends to use the planes for commuter flights in the northern area of the country. The nine-seater Alice is the world's first flight-tested all-electric commuter aircraft. It produces no emissions and, according to aviation, costs significantly less to operate per flight hour than light jets or high-end turboprops. Aviation reported in November that it's booked more than $2 billion in orders. Yoshe, Northwest News Radio. Before I ever got into radio, and actually during studies, I was in the food industry, actually a server at the Edgewater Hotel. I remember you had to get yourself a food permit, some kind of a health permit. You go and take a test, and you pass, you get that permit. But now maybe call this an entrance fee to the food service business. Before a waiter, bartender, food server can start a new job, they have to pay a small fee for an online food safety class. That might sound logical, but through that class, these workers are helping to fund a nationwide lobbying campaign and to keeping their wages from increasing. It was quite a story we found in the New York Times. And Bill O'Neill went after the reporter who had the tales to share. David, how do we get from food safety class to lobbying to keep food service workers from making more money? It's a connection that the food industry goes a long way toward obscuring. This is how it works. 
So in many states, not Washington, but a lot of other states, workers, before they start work, and we're talking about bartenders, waiters, cooks, pretty much anybody who touches food in a restaurant has to get something called a food handler certification. Uh, and it, in most states, it's like $15, and most of them pay a company called ServeSafe for it. ServeSafe is not the only company that provides that training, but it's like the Kleenex of the business. It's the sort of brand that defines the business. So they pay the money, they watch a couple-hour video, they get their certification, and they're off. What they don't know is that ServeSafe is owned by the National Restaurant Association, which is a lobbying group for the restaurant industry. And one of the main things the Restaurant Association does with the money it gets from ServeSafe is lobby to keep workers' wages low, fight increases in the minimum wage. So workers, without knowing it, as you said, are funding, basically lobbying against themselves. They're funding the lobbying that keeps their own wages low. You know, I can hear some people now, especially those waiters and bartenders, asking, how is this legal? (laughs) It's a great question. The reason it's legal, as far as we can tell, is that the National Restaurant Association is something called a business league. It's a kind of nonprofit. And they're allowed to run a for-profit business like ServeSafe, as long as that business serves the broader interest of their trade. So they argue, well, look, it's fine for us to do this. We're helping the restaurant business by making workers safer. That's the situation. The problem, I think, this is not as much of a legal problem as it is a moral problem, is that they don't tell the workers this is happening. They don't tell the workers, look, when you give your money to serve safe, this is what we do with it. Uh, it there's only a line on the serve safe website saying the proceeds are reinvested back into the industry. Nothing about lobbying and especially nothing about lobbying for the minimum wage to stay low. Is ServeSafe the only option for these workers? It's not. There are other alternatives. But what we heard is that the brand is so entrenched that maybe more than 70% of the market, that in some cases, restaurant owners and more importantly, health inspectors who are sort of the police for this, don't even know there's things outside of ServeSafe. Instead of coming to the restaurant saying, hey, do you have your food handler card? They'll say, hey, do you have your ServeSafe card? It's that entrenched, and so it's hard for competitors to break in. As you said, this is all part of the National Restaurant Association. I'm sure you approached them. What did they have to say about this? They wouldn't agree to an interview, but they, they gave us a, um, some written statements that basically said, our advocacy is good for the industry, it's good for the public, it's good for workers that we're out there doing this. You know, they, the moral question of, you know, is it moral to take this money from workers, use it to lobby against raising their wages and not tell them you're doing that? they wouldn't directly address that question. Meanwhile, there has to be some kind of push to do something about this, I would think, anyway. There is. There are some groups that are fighting for raising waiters' wages or raising raising minimum wages overall um, who are trying to file legal challenges to this. Uh, They are trying to also get workers just not to use SurfSafe, to use competitors so they don't end up sort of funding the other side of the debate. Well, it's an interesting behind-the-scenes look that raises a lot of questions. David Farenthold, read much more on this online at nytimes.com. I have a neighbor I'm sure is going to be excited to hear a story about another plate idea being proposed to celebrate another idea that originated here in our state. Stick around for our fifth segment. Right now, I want to share a pair of new bills to limit home rent increases and to go after predatory landlords have begun their journey through the state house. Ryan Harris looks at both sides. One bill would cap rent hikes at the higher of 3% or the inflation rate with a 7% max, and the other would target landlords who use extreme rent raising to discriminate, retaliate, or push renters out. Democratic Representative Nicole Mockery says she's heard from people across the state about what she calls unimaginable 
unimaginable rent increases. 50%, 70%, 100%, hundreds and sometimes thousands of dollars a month. Republican Representative Andrew Barkas, who also works in the rental business, says these bills target what he calls a few bad actors, while landlords' costs have shot through the roof. Your taxes have gone up, your insurance has gone up, inflation's at 7%, and so you have to be able to increase the rent to keep pace. Barkas also worries more regulations like these would drive even more people away from owning rentals, which would reduce the number available and contribute to higher rents. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. Northwest News this week, heard every week at this very same time here at AM 1000, FM 97.7, also as a podcast, anytime for your convenience at nwnewsradio.com. I'm Mark Christopher. We're back with more right after this. Northwest This Week continues. A Northwest man has spent the last several months traveling the country, teaching kids about the dangers of drugs. His story is something they seem to really relate to as well. Richard Jensen doesn't describe himself as a former wrestling star, nor does he introduce himself as a successful motivational speaker or father. I'm an expert in uh, making really bad choices over the years. Jensen's story begins when he was a high school standout wrestler. He was offered scholarships, but decided not to pursue further education. Instead, he chose a different life. I transferred from job to job for a few years. With that fisherman's lifestyle came a lot of drugs and alcohol. We had come into port, we had picked up some drugs, and we had gone back out to sea. I was out in the middle of the Bering Sea when I tried methamphetamine for the first time. That's from the Emmy-winning ESPN documentary, Getting Off the Mat. In it, Richard shares his story of how drugs took over. For years, he was in and out of jail as he sought his next high. The last time I went to prison was October 10th, 2003. And within a month of my incarceration, I got a phone call and I found out my mother was sick. I told my mother that I was gonna change my life, that I was gonna live a different life from here on out, and that she would always be proud of me. Those are words I've said so many times. Only this time, he kept his word. Richard Jensen kicked his habit by returning to school at the age of 36 and joining his community college wrestling team. But I just kept showing up. He made the team. More importantly, he kept that promise to his mother and made a life change. Today, over a decade later... I'm a mentor, I'm a leader, I'm a coach, I'm a great father. And now when the Portland area man speaks to students, he reminds them of the power of finding what motivates each of them. For me, it was finding that vehicle. For Richard Jensen, it was wrestling, even as a guy in his mid-30s who, by the way, wrestled his way to a national championship crown in his division. I had something to lean on, had purpose, motivation, something to keep me engaged, a part of the team. He tells KOIN.com he plans to continue touring local schools this year, sharing the message that not only are drugs dangerous, but how to find that motivation and support to leave them behind. Considering where he's been and all he's been through, Richard Jensen has come a long way from that fishing boat. I feel gifted today to be able to touch lives and change lives. Brian Calvert, Northwest News Radio.
my neighbor, already teaching the sport and the fun of something that is our state's official sport now. Eric Heinz of Northwest News, sharing now that the sport has really caught on so much that it might be worth a license plate to go with it. State Senator John Lovick introduced a bill to create a special license plate recognizing the sport created on Bainbridge Island. The Everett Herald reports proceeds from sales would go to a trust account managed by the Seattle Metro Pickleball Association and used to build and maintain play courts. Seattle resident Jason Laramie came up with the proposed plate's design. In it, a pickleball rises over the waters of the Puget Sound and Mount Rainier with two pickleball paddles on the left side. Eric Heintz, Northwest News Radio. The hope is that you find this program very helpful each and every week to help you catch up to the stories that you may have missed during this past week and the stories we feel important as collected through our reporters, our editors, and our news anchors here at Northwest News Radio. Northwest News This Week, heard every week right at this time on Northwest News Radio, AM 1000 and FM 97.7. And as I mentioned, it's a podcast at nwnewsradio.com. That's where you'll find other favorites like Politicast, LifeBeat, and Puget Sound Now. And if you enjoy this program as a podcast, we hope you'll take a moment and share a rating and review. It's simple to do at Apple Podcast. Northwest News This Week, produced by Bill O'Neill, editor and tech advisor. He puts a lot of work into it. Painter Webb. I'm Mark Christopher. On behalf of all of us here at Northwest News Radio, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week, and you have a good week as well.